0: Hi, I'm Jason Flom, and here on Righteous Convictions, I speak with some of today's most prominent and active agents of change, people who see the wrong in the world and are driven to make it right. Today's guest did do something very wrong as a child, but he now uses the harrowing experience of spending his formative years in solitary confinement to raise awareness about these two insane aspects of
1: our criminal legal system. Once you're in confinement, you have to be disciplinary report free for six months. If you receive a write-up within that 6 months period, that extends your time in solitary confinement for an additional six months. And those months turn into years, and those years turn into decades. And the way I like to describe it is George H.W. Bush was president when I went to solitary confinement. Barack Obama was on his second year when I got out of solitary confinement. Since
0: his release, he's traveled around the country spreading the word about juvenile justice and solitary confinement to try to turn the tide against punishing children as adults. Author, poet, and public speaker, Ian Manuel. Right now, on Righteous Convictions. Welcome back to Righteous Convictions. Today, I am bringing you Ian Manuel, who was convicted of a crime at 13 years old and sentenced to life in prison. But he's so much more than that because when you hear his story and you realize that this man spent 18 years in solitary confinement, 26 years in prison for a non-homicide offense, and now is accomplishing... He doesn't think he's accomplishing enough, but I think anybody else would look at it and say, hey, man, you got to slow down. He's a poet. He's a public speaker. He's a published author. He is an inspiration to a lot of people, and I'm one of them. So without further ado, Ian Manuel, welcome to Righteous Convictions.
1: Thank you for having me, Jason.
0: Let's... Go back to the beginning, Ian, because this story begins really in 1990 when you were just a child. You were 13 years old, living in Tampa, and this housing project that you grew up in, from what I've heard, is one of the most dangerous and violent ones in the entire state of Florida. Is that right?
1: I tell people all the time, I grew up in a place called Central Park, and the Central Park I grew up in, the only time we were jogging uh, is when we were running from the police, you know. Central Park Village was a dangerous place to grow up in, but it was an environment that I was comfortable in because it was all I knew at the time. But, yeah, the crux of the story begins in 1990. Three older teens convinced me to go downtown and gave me the gun to participate in a robbery. And then subsequently, uh, someone was shot during the process of this robbery. She was being escorted to her car by an older gentleman. And by the grace of God, the bullet didn't cause any permanent damage. Her face wasn't disfigured. But she went through years of dental surgery.
0: Yes, and her name is Debbie Bagri. She was, after all, shot in the face and lost some teeth. I mean, it was serious. And she's still alive, fully recovered. But this is obviously a terrible, yes. terrible thing that happened. And I'm not minimizing that. And I gathered that this wasn't intentional. It's something that you immediately regretted. But what resulted afterward is, I got to say it's it's worse. And I think she would agree with that.
1: I was arrested three days later in a stolen car. And this had been weighing on my conscience so much that I just wanted to get it off to tell somebody. And I just, it's painful to even remember because what I did in that police car would set off 30 years of intense trauma and pain because I confessed to the crime of shooting the lady. And You know, Florida has this law that says a child of any age indicted for a life or death felony shall be treated in every respect as if he were an adult. And I was taken to the Hillsborough County Jail on August 17th, 1990. And my attorney told me that it would be in my best interest to plead guilty and that I would receive a 15-year sentence. Telling me that if I go to trial, I'm going to make the judge mad and he's going to give me a life sentence. So I pled guilty. And when it came time for sentencing, the judge said some things to me that I still remember to this day. He said, Mr. Manuel, that was a statement made earlier today in this courtroom about giving you a second chance. But sometimes there are no second chances. So for the crime of attempted murder, I sentence you to life. For the crime of armed robbery, I sentence you to life. For the crime of shooting at the man and attempted murder, I sentence you to life probation. And the life probation is being imposed in case the Department of Corrections should, for whatever reason, ever release you. All sentences are to run concurrent except the life probation, which is to run consecutive. And at, at that time, I, I didn't recognize the full impact of what he had just done to me, but he, he had, in effect, ended my life.
0: I'm just trying to Put myself inside the head of thirteen-year-old Ian or anyone. You're talking about seventh grade, right? Yes. You know, and obviously what you did was wrong. But right. you know, I, I also don't think anybody can judge it without taking into consideration the fact that you were under the sway of these older kids. I don't know whether there was pressure or what could have happened to you if you refused to go along. And I mean, at thirteen, you know, even holding a gun, like your hands right. are so small. And, you know, so I'm not justifying what you did, but I am saying that it's preposterous that this is the only country in the world where a 13-year-old could be sentenced to life without parole for anything, much less for a non-homicide crime. So here we go into the depths of hell.
1: So... I was sentenced to life. About a month later, I was transferred to adult prison. And on my first day in prison, I was placed in solitary confinement because of my age. And they threw me in the cell with no mattress on the floor. I woke up with cockroaches crawling all over me. I'm 14. And it was hell on earth. And fast forward, I was placed in the open population given all the responsibilities. I'm an adult. You know, I kind of rebelled. But one thing I did that I'm totally proud of is the fact that I received all of my paperwork from my lawyer. And I found my victim's phone number and address in the police report. And something compelled me to pick up the phone and call her that day. And it was around Christmas. You know, back then you could press zero and a live operator would come on the phone and you could talk. And um, I said, could you call this number? And I tell me I have a collect call from Ian for Debbie. And she said, sure. So she, she sent the number through and then I heard Debbie on the other end. And she said, can you ask him his last name? And at this time my heart is beating fast. I'm nervous. I'm like, wow, I actually gotta go through with this. So I said, manual. And she accepted the call. And so I just remember blurting out something real fast. Miss Bakery, I just called to wish you and your family a-, a Merry Christmas and to apologize for shooting you, shooting you in the face. It was so hard to say those words. And then she said, Ian, why did you shoot me? And I and I just remember telling her it all happened so fast. It was a mistake. And we talked for 15 minutes. I just remember her asking her one thing before the phone hung up. I said, can I write you? She said, yes, you can write me. And that's how our correspondence started. We wrote back and forth. And she had an extreme amount of pressure from her friends, from her husband, to just forget about Ian and let him die. This guy shot you in the face. Are you crazy? But she just saw something in me that was uh, unique, that was different, that was childlike, and she wanted to try to help preserve it.
0: Yeah, she's a strong, strong woman. And, you know, she found a special place in her heart. And it's nice to know that people like her exist. And uh, like you said, it's it's just a blessing that she wasn't killed. Yes. So you end up serving, Ian, 18 years in solitary confinement. Tell me again, how is it possible that they could keep you or anyone in solitary
1: confinement for 18 years? So, again, I was given all the responsibilities of an adult as a 14-year-old child. You know, the officers would yell at me. I would yell back. Uh, just typical teenage behavior. I was just a bad little child, a teenager, growing up in an adult prison. The difference is, had I been in society, my mom would have taken my TV away, grounded me. But in prison, only thing they know is punishment by beating, gassing, or confinement. So I would be given a disciplinary report for this, a disciplinary report for that. Pretty soon, what those multiple disciplinary reports add up, and they say, you are a management problem. And they put you in solitary confinement. And once you're in confinement, the way the system is set up, you have to be DR free, disciplinary report free for six months. If you receive a write-up within that six months period, that extends your time in solitary confinement for an additional six months. And those months turn into years, and those years turn into decades. And that's how I went from being age 15 when I was originally placed in solitary confinement in November 1992 to 33 years old when I got out of solitary confinement in 2010. Some of the things I received write-ups for is simple things like my mom sent me a card with a frog on it and I put the card in my cell door window and the officer walked by. And instead of telling me to take the card down, he just simply wrote my name down on a piece of paper. A few days later, I received the write-up that said, while making rounds, I observed inmate manual with a card in his window. I ordered inmate manual to remove the card. He refused. Inmate manual was in violation of rule 9-37, obstructing a window or something like that. But that little disciplinary report will extend my time for an additional six months. It was things like that. It was being in possession of a magazine that had someone else's name on it because that's considered contraband. It's not having your bed made up five o'clock in the morning, military style, even though there's nowhere to go. And you don't have no one to cry out to. I ended up spending nearly two decades in a cell the size of an elevator. And the way I like to describe it is George H.W. Bush was president when I went to solitary confinement. Barack Obama was on his second year of his first term when I got out of solitary confinement.
2: info
0: now. Your superhero, your angel, came in the form of a legend, a civil rights legend, a legal legend, a man that I admire so much, a man named Brian Stevenson.
1: Yeah, I wish I would have brought the actual letter because one day out of the clear blue sky, I, I get a legal letter that I have to sign for And it was like manna from heaven. The letter says, I'm the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative here in Montgomery, Alabama, and we've mostly handled death penalty cases for the past 20 years. However, in a recent Supreme Court decision, Roper versus Simmons, we believe that the Supreme Court may be ready to rule on a case pertaining to life without parole for juveniles. And if you don't have a lawyer, I'm willing to take your case.
0: <laughs> yeah that's the closest you can get to being represented by God um <laughs> yeah and Brian Stevenson for anyone who doesn't already know I mean the film Just Mercy did a great job of highlighting his legal work. Mm-hmm. He is a celebrated author and speaker, a living legend in the courtroom. He's won yes. Supreme Court cases. He's sprung over 135 people from death row. Wow. It's yes. absolutely a staggering record of accomplishment. And as you mentioned, Brian spoke to you about the Supreme Court's recent ruling at that time, Roper versus Simmons, which held that it was unconstitutional to impose capital punishment for crimes committed before the age of 18, and that he was trying to bring a case like yours before the Supreme Court to get them to rule on life without parole sentences imposed on children. Your case was denied review, but there was another case that had the same effect that Brian was trying to have. And of course, I'm referring to the 2010 decision, Grant versus Florida, which held that juvenile offenders and children, again, I'm going to say what it is, children cannot be sentenced to life without parole for non-homicide offenses as it's a clear violation of the Eighth Amendment. This obviously had huge implications for you. Do you remember when you heard that news?
1: I had a small AM FM radio that I had smuggled to me in. And I'll never forget, it was one o'clock on May 17th, 2010. It was at the top of the hour and I was listening to NPR and and the news came on real quick. And it said, and the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision has just overturned life sentences for non-homicide convictions for juveniles. I'm like, what? Then it went on to the next thing, and I had to wait 30 minutes to hear it again, and it changed from a 5-4 decision to a 6-3 decision. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is it? And I'm like, it's over. It's over. I just remember screaming, it's over. But it wasn't over because finally in 2011, a year later, I was taken back to be resentenced thinking I was going home. But the judge said, I nullify the life sentences, and in place of the life sentences, I resentenced Mr. Manuel to 65 years in prison, followed by 10 years of probation and two years of community control. I was totally crushed, man. But I had a legal team, a dream team that would not give up on me. And They appealed and four years later in 2016, based on another case that said that you couldn't give a juvenile more than 40 years if you didn't give him a life sentence in Florida, if his crime happened between 1983 and 1994. So my crime happened in 1990 and I fell in within that window and I went back to court in 2016 and I, I was sentenced to time served and so I was released that night. One of the first people that I touched upon my release was uh, Debbie Baker. We, we, we met at a, a gas station across the street from the jail, and we hugged, and I, I got to kiss her on the cheek. I, it was always a dream of mine in solitary confinement that if I ever got out of prison, that I would kiss her on the side of a cheek where the bullet went in, and I know this sounds crazy and unbelievable that a person could actually experience this, but it was my dream, and I got to do it. Then we went and had pizza. And it just just tasted like the most delicious thing I had ever ate after eating that nasty prison food for 26 years. Yeah, and
0: certainly Florida's never been known for its pizza. (laughs) No disrespect, Florida. But your story really points out just how important these Supreme Court rulings and really how important general elections are as well. And what I mean is in 2012, the Miller versus Alabama decision made mandatory sentences of life without parole unconstitutional for children outside of cases of permanent incorrigibility. And in 2016, Montgomery versus Louisiana ruled that the Miller ruling applied retroactively, which actually had a major impact on our friend Terrence Lewis's case, which if you haven't already heard his story on our Wrongful Conviction podcast, please go back and check out that episode. But here we are in 2021, and these positive gains in juvenile justice are being fucking rolled back by a conservative court full of Trump appointees. They decided in Jones versus Mississippi that although mandatory life sentences are unconstitutional, They left the discretion up to the sentencing judge with no requirement to establish incorrigibility in order to impose life sentences on children.
1: They have just gutted Miller with that decision. And basically, from what my understanding is that long as the life sentence isn't mandatory, that the judge doesn't have to consider the child's youth anymore in determining if he has to have a life sentence or not. And thankfully, that decision, it doesn't gut the Graham decision because it's for a non-homicide. But what is so painful about that decision is juvenile advocates like Brian and myself have fought so long to just get some progress in this area. And then they're actually undoing the work. The 5-4 decision that got me out of prison, if one justice rules the opposite way. We're not having this conversation. You never meet an Ian e. Manuel. I never get to contribute to society. And it's another Ian e. Manuel somewhere in the depths of a prison, just waiting on that opportunity. And he needs a chance too.
0: There's a lot of Ian Manuals, and there's a lot of them out there that are innocent as well, that were sentenced to yes. life as juveniles for crimes they didn't even commit or didn't even know about. And this decision is so horrible. It also says that judges don't have to consider what they call incorrigibility, right? As if they have some special power to be able to predict the future and say that some kid is uh, unredeemable. You know, it was Brian Stevenson, of course, who uttered the immortal line. I believe everybody mm-hmm. is better than the worst thing they've ever done. Yes. You are living proof of that. But the Supreme Court just basically pissed on that statement. It's a national shame. We're so out of step with other countries. It's awful. Agreed. And for our audience who may not know that in our country, nearly 250,000 children are tried, convicted and incarcerated as adults every year. Think about that. It's nuts. And since your release, Ian, in 2016, you've been doing exactly what you've done here today, which is telling your story, putting a human face to the statistic that I just mentioned, and really just trying to wake people up to these injustices. Can you talk about your work in public speaking and raising awareness?
1: Uh, Me and my team, we felt like there was a space for us to really bring attention to the issues of juvenile justice that people may have been ignoring. Because, again, people probably uh, was under the impression that everything was solved with the Miller decision, with the Montgomery decision, with the Graham and the Roper decision. So many positive decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court over the course of the past 10 years. However, as the court just showed us, there's much more work that needs to be done.
0: And Ian, I'm so glad you're doing that. I mean, just getting out there, but spreading the word and getting other people involved and motivated and, and angry, pressure, breaks pipes and we need everyone to join us on this mission. We're so totally out of step with the rest of the world and right? it needs to change. And that's why your work, it's so important that it's so inspiring.
1: Jason, I I really appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast, but I really don't think I've actually accomplished enough to even warrant being here yet you know, um, you know, I'm working on ending juvenile solitary confinement across the country. I had a op ed that came out in the New York Times about my experiences in solitary confinement and ending solitary confinement for juveniles and adults, but particularly for juveniles. And then right after that, Governor Cuomo signed into law about ending solitary confinement like a week after my op-ed. And people are telling me, Ian, that your op-ed definitely influenced that decision. I don't know how true that is, but I'm glad if it did that I played such a small role in it. But. more work needs to be done. I mean, a juvenile can still be placed in solitary in the state of Florida. Even though President Obama signed the federal law saying that you can no longer incarcerate a juvenile in solitary confinement in the feds, that doesn't stop it from being done in different states across the country. So there's a lot more work that needs to be done. And as the Supreme Court decision that came out on April 22nd, We still have more work that needs to be done there. There's so many problems that I think that we can work together to end the abuses that occur. Because like I told people during my CNN interview, if what can happen to George Floyd in the broad daylight with cameras everywhere, imagine what goes on behind those closed walls in solitary confinement when there's no cameras, no one's looking.
0: We have to talk about My Time Will Come. This is your memoir, and this is coming out with a significant amount of fanfare. Um, Did you get your copy yet? I just got my copy in the mail yesterday. You know, Great. So, uh, yeah, I was so happy to see it. it's on my uh, coffee table right now in The Vision right. of Honor. Tell us about the memoir.
1: Well, the, the memoir was something I dreamed about in solitary confinement. I felt like my story needed to be told because— you know what happened to me should never have happened to a child and then just the survival aspect of it man it seems so improbable that a human being could survive that and not only survive that but Do it with his sanity, his talent, and his humanity intact because prison damages people. Prison crushes your spirit. I think them placed me there at such a young age, and me being able to tap into my imagination actually helped me survive because I was able to delve into my imagination and write poems about survival and just what I do when I get out. I have a prophetic poem called My Time's Gonna Come that I wrote in solitary, and it says this. It says... I promise you, the brunt of my oppression has a purpose. And this same person that you persecute will one day be worshipped. Though I stand before you bare-chested and shirtless with my soul and emotions naked, just wanting to be nurtured. Yeah, despite the desperation, desertion, and hurting, my time gonna come. Though I compose this poem not knowing If I ever be able to perform it in an auditorium, I do it with the faith of a poet that believes he was born to do it like an acorn caught up in a storm, flung from the branch where it was born. You can only hold me back for so long. My time going to come. Despite the difficulties and disappointments, my determination remains undaunted. Though the waters of my tomorrows are deep and uncharted, the buoyance of my character will float unwavering towards them. Like a song written, yet unrecorded, my time gon' come. Though you wrapped me in chains and sprayed me with chemical flames and did all of the things you did to add to my pain, my circumstances will change. I believe this with the deaths of my being that as long as this world continues to spin, it cannot end until it's been enjoyed by Ian. Remember this day because things won't always be this way. My time going to come. My time going to come against all conceivable odds. My time going to come. And I truly believe my time is here now. And I wrote that poem in solitary confinement when things just seemed bleak for me. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's awesome. And you have a gift. And I know that's part of what got you through all that time in solitary is, is yes, creating yes. poetry and, and, and other kinds of art. And another hero in this story is, uh, of course, Mrs. Bagri, Debbie Bagri. I'm talking about, mm-hmm. who was the victim in this case, but refused to remain a victim. And yes. if she's listening, I wanted to say to her that you have all my respect. And I would like to know, Ian, if she's listening, what would you like to say to her?
1: Debbie, I love you. I miss you. Um, thank you for accepting my apology as a 14-year-old child. Thank you for accepting that collect call. Many people would have hung up the phone and called the prison and said that the assailant was trying to contact them and threaten them. I want to say thank you for surviving because you're a survivor too. Had you died, I mean, I, I remember sitting in my solitary confinement cell at uh, Florida State Prison after every time there was an execution at the prison, and then the victim's family would always, always say, This is what she would have wanted. This is what my my dad would have wanted. This is what my uncle would have wanted, that the person was put to death. But you survived, and the world got to hear that that is not what you have wanted. You wanted me free. You wanted me to have a second chance at life. So I'm so thankful that you survived to tell your own story, and so no one could lie and twist your words for you. Thank you for being a survivor, Debbie.
0: And now, in a question I ask all of our guests. If you had a magic wand and could change one thing, what would it be?
2: Hmm.
1: That my mom would have never died and would have survived to see me released from prison. Her dying while I was in prison, I know it broke her heart. You know, it probably expedited her death. And I wanted her to see that I actually survived, that I, I didn't perish behind bars, man, that I got a second chance at life.
0: Rest in peace. Um... And now, the close of our show. First of all, I thank you, Ian, You know, just for being you. Thanks again for sharing your story. And I'm looking forward to doing a lot more work together. And now, the close of our show, I turn my microphone off. This is a section we call Words of Wisdom. And leave your mic on for anything you may have forgotten to, to say or anything that you would like to say to our audience. So, Ian Manuel, thanks again. Over to you for Words of Wisdom.
1: Words of wisdom Maya Angelou said There's no pain Like that of an untold story inside you My story no longer remains untold It's now out into the world My time will come You can read my story And I've got a lot of that pain out of me on paper There's no pain like that of an untold story inside you Words of wisdom from Maya Angelou I truly believe that And I just share my story with the world It was cathartic to write And it was painful to write, but it was healing. And so I I just hope you guys give the book a chance. My time will come.
0: Thank you for listening to Righteous Convictions. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Righteous Convictions is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company number one.
3: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day.
2: More info now.